Hi everyone, I just wanted to jump in really quick before we start and say if you are enjoying the podcast please make sure you rate and review on iTunes, subscribe and follow us on Spotify or even if you just tell a friend in person who you think would like it too. Basically we're at the start of something really exciting, we're growing a little community of people and you've got the power to help us grow that even further and get it in front of more people so if you'd like that make sure you do all of that good stuff and thank you and on with the podcast. Hi Dad. Hi Celine. Did you know that you and I are about the same age if you count time living in the world? What do you mean? Well, as you know, I left a high control religious group around the time you were born. So you're in your 20s then? (laughs) Well, maybe in my head. The thing is though, because I had all of my beliefs about morals, science, politics, religion, philosophy provided for me, I spent the last 25 years trying to work out what I should think about a whole bunch of stuff and work out what's going on. No one knows what's going on, Dad. (laughs) Well, I think it's about time we did. What Should I Think About is a podcast that sets off on a lofty goal to make sense of the complicated, contradictory, confusing but wonderful thing we call the world. Hello and welcome to the What Should I Think About podcast. I'm Celine, And I'm Stephen. And we're very excited about today's guest. Uh, Today we're talking to Alex Miller. And Alex is an artist originally from Springside, just outside Kilmarnock. um, Now living in the north of England. Uh, and his galleries in Newcastle just reopened, I believe. So maybe tell us about that. Um, now, we know you, Alex, from your beautiful and touching paintings of traditional working people going about their lives. But what I didn't know is that you were raised as a Jehovah's Witness. So welcome to the podcast, Alex. Thank you for having me, Stephen. It's, uh... Absolute pleasure. So maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about that upbringing, Alex. Uh, I'm third generation um, witness. My grandmother, grandfather found a book under my uncle Harry's pillow and um, began reading it and thought they had found the truth. (laughs) And so everybody in the family came in. Uh, My mum came in, her sister came in. So the whole family came in and my mum met my father, I think in Twickingham, Twickenham, um, yeah. one of the assemblies there. Mm. And and then I came on the scene. And uh, it's a strange upbringing, you know, because um, I've always wanted to start a book by saying mm. that my, le- my life took a downward spiral after my father shot my grandfather. And that's true. We don't talk about it. Whoa. <laughs> the, the moral of the story is don't go shooting rabbits with a one-eyed man. My dad had one eye. <laughs> he, had, uh, he was a cyclops. No, he had one eye uh, when he got it taken out. He was playing darts with his friends, and they had the dartboard up in the shed door, and Dad opened the door and got the, the King Harold. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, and that led to him shooting my grandfather's leg off, and that went down like a lead balloon. Mm. Yeah, so there was a lot in my family that was weird, you know. I mean, my mother had bong eye. She had a bong eye and a cat's eye. She mm. fell out of bed when she was little, and she had a good eye was a cat's eye. Oh, wow. Um, and so despite 
all the weirdness around myself and the family. I was brought up as a Jehovah's Witness, which was weird to the extreme. You know, it put it put weirdness on another level. <laughs> so, what was weird about it then? How what what was? Uh... Oh well, you know what it's like. You know, you go to school and you you have to leave assembly, and at that time, uh, I went to. It's the Springside Primary School. It was a little village, tiny little village in between the towns of Kilmarnock and Irvine in the west of Scotland, just about 25 miles south of Glasgow. You think Glasgow's rough, Kilmarnock, my goodness. Um, so uh, Springside Primary was fine. It was more like a little house with two classrooms in it. Then you went to Draghorn, which was the next village along. Draghorn Primary, a large sandstone building like dark red sandstone building but there was probably maybe about six to eight hundred pupils in in the in the school and then when assembly came you you were part of the assembly until prayer time (laughs) and then you had to stand up and walk past hundreds of kids and all looking at you you know as if you had two heads and then after the, the prayer was finished, you can walk back and in and everybody's there. And then, you know, no birthdays, no Halloween, no Christmas. I used to hate Christmas, you know. Yeah. yeah. Watching all the Christmas presents cycle past your your door, your front window and, you know, you know what mm. it was like. Yeah, absolutely. What, what do you think about the kind of way it separates you? Because I think that's something that I reflect upon is that it, it kind of makes you feel like you're an observer of everything that's going around on around you as opposed to a a, a participant is that is that something you recognize yeah you feel like an alien hmm. you feel as though you've landed in some mothership and um all your family are aliens i mean my mum and dad look like aliens anyway with their <laughs> bong eyes and crazy hair um and my nana and papa were were uh, you're, you're, actually if you see my paintings that was my family that's ah, okay. exactly what my family was like yeah um that's probably why i paint most of my paintings from the back <laughs> <laughs> there's no faces <laughs> well you know i mean if you'd uh, if you'd seen them you'd, nobody would have bought the paintings if they included their faces so I mean I'm no oil painting myself, but my God, my family. Um, I've actually got a painting downstairs. I'll, I'll never part with it because it's me and my mum and dad and the wee dog. Actually, the wee dog left me with a scar in my eyelid. It nearly took my eye out. I, I nearly joined the family of crazy-eyed people you know, <laughs> uh, for the wee dog. Um, but I've got that downstairs. And I've called it my family and other animals, and that's exactly <laughs> what we were. You know, it's mm-hmm. the the uh, Durrell, yes, Durrell, yes. Durrell, yeah. you know. mm. um, but it was it was it was a it was a strange odd because at the time being born into it you don't know any better no and apart from being odd having been in an odd family being raised as a witness had its own peculiarities and. It was it just it just made it all the more unusual, but in a way you kind of you kind of accepted it anyway, you know. You didn't like it, 
but you just accepted it and got on with it because that was your family and that's all you knew. Hmm. Um, so did we... you, were you sort of one of those um, children who was kind of really into it? I mean, I was, I really believed it was the truth when I was growing up. So although I found it hard at school and all that, as you've described, I, I thought I was doing the right thing because I really believed it. Did you believe it or was it just something you had to do? <clears throat> something I had to do. Okay. I would have what I would have spent my time playing football, yeah. playing Jacks and Jerry's with my friends out in the fields because it was surrounded by countryside, the wee village, huh. and uh, I would have rather played my time uh, being a normal kid. Hmm. Um, no, I, I, I didn't, I didn't like it. I didn't like it at all, um, <laughs> and I wasn't, I wasn't. Uh, we call them sooks. <laughs> if you're, you know, you make that sooky noise. It, like, if you were good at school, everybody, would, oh, you're a sook, you know, um, yeah. sooking so, up to the teacher. Um, oh, I got you. Yeah. I was never a theocratic sook. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was, it was a, it was a, a social club, um, mm. because you know, it's like yeah, all your friends have to be in the truth. Yeah. Um, so I tried desperately to get my best friend in the village to become a witness, which he eventually did. So, oh wow! Yeah. But I, I, I preferred, I preferred, be try to being normal, try to being normal. I never viewed the truth as being a, a vocation or a, um, something to get a, a career. I never viewed it as that. Okay. Then, then I got married. I got married far too young. I got married at nineteen, like so, every. Yeah, so you married a fellow witness, I guess? Yeah, I met her in Edinburgh, um, mm-hmm. one of the assemblies at Murrayfield. And at that time, I wasn't getting on with my dad. Um, we didn't see eye to eye, no pun intended, because he's one eye. Um, <laughs> uh, we, uh, we didn't go on at all when, when I was a teenager, and I was just looking for an excuse to leave. So I had a chance to come down to Newcastle where my future wife lived and um, ended up getting married within the year, not really knowing the woman, you know, Mm. uh, and having to stay married. I was married for 22 years. And I knew in my honeymoon I'd made a mistake. (sighs) That was fun. But like everybody else, you kind of, you lose your identity. You lose your identity when you're a young child anyway, being raised as a witness. Mm. And uh, when you're older, you become, as my f- good friend would call it, you become a shout. You okay. become a shout to everybody. You, you're, you're the husband, you're the dad, you're the brother, you're the ministerial servant, you're the elder, you're this, you're the auntie, the uncle, blah, 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 blah. Mm. And you never really have time because you have to go to five meetings a week and prepare and then field service. And then, and you never have time to sit down and go, who am I? Yeah. What do I really want out of life? Yeah, absolutely. It, it doesn't allow you that luxury. You know? So how did you end up leaving the witnesses then? Oh, here we go. Are you ready for this? Um, <laughs> I... I was. I had a. Um, 
my dad was ill. That's kind of how it started. My dad had Parkinson's disease for for about 20 years and he was on his way out. He was dying. And I found that quite difficult to cope with because at the time I was an elder and I had three children. Uh, I was a window cleaner. That's <laughs> mm-hmm. you, you know. Yeah. Uh, and you know, you think, oh, you're a window cleaner. You know, you're able to devote so much more time to the ministry and blah blah blah. But I was exhausted. I was I was physically exhausted, earning a pittance, absolute pittance. When I think about it, I mean, my weekly wage was about 150 quid. And that's five days up and down ladders mm. and then having to come home and look after kids and then mm. uh, study and then prepare for meetings and then go and fuse it. And it just... Mm. Um, what was the question again? How did you end up leaving? Oh, leaving. You're right. Okay. My dad was um, ill and I found it harder and harder to, to cope. I eventually brought my mum and dad down to Newcastle to live in sheltered accommodation so I could look after them a bit better and be near them. Uh, and that, because it was too much, I stood down as an elder. And that that sent me into a tailspin. Okay. Um, that sent me into not really, because it was the first time for years that I wasn't having to prepare for meetings as much mm. and talks and da 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 and it was time for my brain just to kind of slow down a wee bit and then my father died and then that was it that was the you know it's like you know the Jenga games mm. Mm. You know, like all through your life you're piling your identity or you know who you are up to mm. the very top and all of a sudden something comes along the very bottom and, and goes okay you know, and the whole thing topples down. Mm. That's what happened to me when my father died. My brain collapsed. It's the only way I can describe it. That yeah. It was like being pushed up to a precipice, like this, this black hole, and not being able to stop it, and then being pushed over and then free-falling. Mm. Uh, I free-fell for about two years. Um, and at the same time, I was... I was I was having an identity crisis, basically. I didn't know who I was. Um, I didn't love my wife anymore. I, I couldn't stand the sight of her. I remember sleeping in the edge of the very edge of the bed um, for months and eventually left. I had a big nervous breakdown and physical breakdown. I was I lost about five stone. I was a shadow of a man. Um, and I became homeless and penniless, uh, got divorced, ended up living in my car. Huh. And uh, But at the same time, when my dad was ill, I, w- I used to do drawings of the old men I remember from the village. Mm. <clears throat> and that's the old men that you see in my paintings. And mm. it was just an attempt to make them smile. And <laughs> then everybody wanted them. And while I was in my car, <laughs> I was trying to do paintings and trying to, I had, I had a little bit of my window cleaning round left, but my paintings were starting to take right. over. Yeah. Um, but it took me, it took me two years to, for my 
my brain to stitch back together again. I was yeah. having terrible, I was having out of body experiences and all sorts. It was like, there was one time I eventually ended up being taken in with this um, lovely old lady. Oh, she'd hate me if I said she was old. Um, <laughs> her and her husband took me in and I ended up living in the loft. Typical artist. I should have had me and <laughs> prostitutes all over. But, um, and that, that was in the Thumberland. And she was lovely because she was well-read and well-studied and adapt, uh, very adept in psychology. Um, so she... I was telling her I was seven knees, like I was like walking beside myself. It was like an mm-hmm. umbilical cord from my eyes, and I could almost like see myself. <clears throat> and she said, "Oh, it's normal. That's called disassociation." And, yeah. and I was going, "It's, it's there's a name for it, you know." I thought, I'm just madness, <laughs> bonkers. And she helped me figure things out, but it still took me two years. I ended up living in a small cottage in the middle of nowhere in Northumberland, which was great because. It was pure isolation and just surrounded by deer and trees and countryside and nothing to do with religion. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I would dread knocks at the door just in case it was right. a okay. witness. And, but I was far enough away from my old congregation that I had vanished off the face of the earth, basically. Right. And, and during that time, was that then when you started to... Uh, did, did you actually one of the questions I, I'm asking everybody that I, I find really interesting um, is was there a moment when you realized you were no longer a Jehovah's Witness or was it a slow process? Yeah, it was a very slow process. Um, That's interesting. This was 22 years ago. Hmm. Yeah. So at that time, there was no ex-Jehovah's Witness community. No. And there was no real way to get an understanding that this wasn't the truth. Mm. This wasn't God's organization, that you didn't have to be part of this organization to survive Armageddon. Mm. Um so it was a very difficult time and there was there was nothing I could lay an anchor to or attach myself to. There was no support group. No. So the cognitive dissonance that you have being brought up in the truth. I hate calling it the truth. Brought up and yeah, watched. It's such a habit, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Um that cognitive dissonance is the biggest threat to your life after you leave than anything else i think it's less today because there is this huge community online that you can you can talk to and offload to i was fortunate because one of my friends had left watchtower um roughly at the same time and he became a real he was i knew him when when we were in assembly 14 i met him when i was 14 Taking the hamburgers from the other week, you know, as part of food service. Yeah. You know, and then he eventually left Watchtower, and he said, "Oh, have you have you listened to Lloyd Evans? Have oh. you heard? Have you heard Lloyd? Who's Lloyd Evans?" And, he's, and then listening to Lloyd Evans opened up a huge world mm. of XJW 
community and that has helped tremendously in the past I would say the past five years four or five years but up until then um, the watchtower once it gets its hooks into you as a young child Absolutely. It, it takes an awful lot of effort to get get short of those hooks yeah um, absolutely i i guess i was leaving at about the same time actually um sort of late 90s um early 2000s um so we're probably around the same sort of journey by the sounds of it obviously a mm-hmm. different coming from a different place but in terms of um there was nothing in terms of support really perhaps the odd if you're a bit of a computer geek you might be able to get on the odd um discussion group or news group or something but other than that there was absolutely nothing and i i didn't have anything to do with that so yeah i def i i really identify with that and i think the other thing that i, I kind of an observation from that is you know obviously i've done a lot of reading around cults and groups and so on but they're often these uh these books are often geared towards people who get dragged into cults and then have to find their way back to being who they were before. But I think for people like you and me, there is no before, you know, it's like, how do you come to terms with your identity and who you are? You've already talked about some of that actually, Alex, but um, can you tell us a little bit more about that journey in terms of finding actually who you are, you know, who, who am I? What do I like? What don't I like? Um, I guess that's something that that you struggled with, and that maybe those couple of years in in a bit of peace and quiet helped you to to, to make sense of all of that. I I read. I wasn't a great great bookworm when I was younger. Um, in fact, if you're know that I know how the mind works a little bit more, I understand you're either. Um, a visual person, you're a kinesthetic person, or you're an auditory person. And I was very visual, still am. Um, so the idea of reading books was like, oh, no, torture. <clears throat> but I wanted to understand what happened to me, what it was that made me have a breakdown, mm-hmm. and what happened in my brain or my mind to make me go through that process because nothing I didn't care about anything I didn't care who hurt I didn't care if I lived or died mm. see that was a dangerous thing I used to I mean mm. I'll be honest with you I used to have a bridge I used to go to um, and it was the bottom of Newcastle and it was a big railway bridge and I would stand there at the bottom of that bridge like a complete lunatic I mean, people at my I would stand there for hours just counting, looking from the top to the bottom. I called it my three-second bridge. I would go one, two, three. I was counting how long it would take to fall. Mm. And I thought, oh, three seconds is too long. <laughs> so I thought, if I could get it just a second, maybe I could, I could jump. And I would go to this bridge, and it was those suicidal, <coughs> suicidal tendencies that are very, very dangerous, are very... I understand now why people commit suicide. Mm. And I understand the torture that people that leave the watchtower 
the mm. trauma that they go through is, is nobody understands unless you've been through it yourself, unless mm. you've left a high control doomsday death cult mm -hmm. like Watchtower um, from a yeah. very early age. So I I read loads and loads of books. Okay. And I was became really interested in this NLP. Yeah. Which is, you know, is neuro linguistic programming. So it was using language patterns and dare I say hypnosis since there's another cogn cognitive dis oh mm. hypnosis, you're inviting the demons into your head. Oh, you're doomed. <laughs> And um, so there was lots of barriers you had to break through. It was like oh, and getting into meditation. Meditation, oh, you're going to let the, de you know, you're surrounded by fear. And, oh, yeah. my God. So, I'm start with yoga next. <laughs> I did yoga. I did. I've done everything. I've done, I went through the alcohol, uh, alcoholic thing, and you name it, I've done it. And it was trying to make sense of that's who I was. I was trying to make sense of who I was by doing everything I never did when I was younger. Um, uh, I, I, be I, I became not a very nice person to be around, very dangerous person. Um, and it's that not wanting to live anymore. I didn't care what I did. Right. I really didn't care what I did because I knew if Armageddon came, I was going to die anyway. Yeah. If I drank too much or did anything else, I was going to who cares? Nobody's going to miss me anyway, you know. Mm. And But I met a, a, another chap who became a very good friend of me, mine, and he he uh, put me in hypnosis and made me realise that you had to love yourself. Mm. Um, and hypnosis is the most wonderful place to be. Oh, my God. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been hypnotised, but wow. I, I went to... Um, hypnotherapist actually but I, I I seem to be one of these people that just doesn't seem to be able to um, go under I, 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 maybe I need to try somebody else I did mm. quite like the idea but no I haven't experienced Medi that. meditation as well wow mm. what, what, a, what a blast that that became that became my go-to thing to be able to let go. There's, there's another book that I read, I forget the name of the woman that wrote it, and it was called The Power of Letting Go. And my friend, little Bobby, the lady I was telling you about that took me in, mm -hmm. she um, she said, she, she gave us a few of life's secrets that you never get taught. Nobody teaches you them. Your parents don't teach you them. Watchtower definitely not teach them, and you you won't teach them at school, universities, nothing. One of those secrets was letting go, and she says once you let go, things happen. She says realize that you cannot control anything in your life, and once you are able to get your head round being able to let go, just surrender yourself to life. She says. Watch doors open for you. <laughs> and I thought, this is crazy. She says, you, you'll have been taught all your life to push, to try harder, push harder. If it doesn't open, push harder. Uh, if it does, still doesn't push even harder. Mm -hmm. She says, it'll exhaust you and the doors won't open. She says, it's like being in a relationship. If, um, <clears throat> 
if you're in a relationship and you say to that person, I can't live without you, don't leave me, that person will run a mile from you if you try and trap them and control them. Um, But if you say to them, I love you, I don't want to stand in your way, live your life, I can be with you or not, I'm I'm here, I'll love you forever. And that person will stay with you forever. And she says, treat life like that and watch what happens. And it took me two weeks of meditating on that principle of letting go. And doors opened. Um, I had a sellout exhibition in Glasgow, in a gallery gallery in Glasgow. And two weeks after that, I got a phone call from Britain's biggest fine art publisher. And they wanted to represent me. And they says, we'll put you on an international stage. And Hmm. they came their biggest seller for about 10 years. And I had politicians, I had pop stars, or I could could name, so I ended up in Hollywood, for goodness sake, ended up (laughs) going out with Lindsay Lohan and uh, Robert Plant. And oh, I've got photographs of them Oh, yeah, you wouldn't believe. And ever since then, things will happen in my life. And I'll think, oh, I must do this. And then I have to say, whoa, hang on. Whoa, whoa, you can't do anything. Let it come to you. Mm-hmm. I have to keep reminding myself. Yeah, yeah. That, that, was, that was a big help to, mm-hmm. to help me in that, that process of discovering who I was. That's really. I wanted to ask you about about your art, and I know Celine wants to talk to you a little bit about that. I suppose the only thing I want to want to say first about that is how how I really love to see um, your art. I mean, I, I don't um, have any of your paintings. I can't afford to have your paintings in my room, but they are absolutely beautiful. And and what I'd really do love about it is that. Um, kind of celebration of the working man which yeah. i think is um is something that is often forgotten really um amidst all the political kind of discussions around everything it's you know there's there's a lot of honest working men who go to work do their job look after the kids and there's just a real warmth to those pictures that i think is is really really nice so yeah, I just wanted to say that at some point during this interview. What I try to do in the paintings is try to make something extraordinary out of something that's ordinary. Yeah. And I think if if people looked at the looked at the sky more, just looked at the ordinary things in life, you know, your mm. your family, your loved ones, and not get sidetracked with religion and politics and all the diversive things in the world. Yeah. The things that we need to focus on are right in front of us, mm-hmm. the ordinary things, and they are the extraordinary things that, that should be of in, in, import to uh, to each of us, you know. Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to ask, and I mean, it probably follows on fairly well from that, is just, do you feel like that process and the way that you look to do your art so looking for the sort of extra extraordinary in the ordinary do you think that's a big part of helping with your healing as well as finding out about yourself is doing your art in that way 
<clears throat> yeah, I, th I think it's very cathartic, uh, Celine. It's uh, uh, here you hear of a lot of people doing art therapy to help cope with stresses and, and this and that. It's because that you're using your right hemisphere. Your right, ah, joke on. <laughs> your right hemisphere is full of rainbows and unicorns and, <laughs> and fluffy stuff, fluffy toys. That's where inspiration lies. That's where mm. your child behaving like a kid. I'm, I must admit, I'm a big kid at heart. You know, I, I still I love to frighten people and play jokes <laughs> and, and behave like a kid. And I'm very right hemisphere. Mm. The older you get, you get taught to use your left brain more mm. and that's where <laughs> that's where you'll find your psychopaths and sociopaths <laughs> they're all, they're all the politicians are all left hemisphere and that's why the world is in such a state because we're run by left hemisphere people i'm convinced of it <laughs> i'm sure if you were to take a um uh, what do you call those uh that is it an anagram for you mri mri mm. yeah and I, uh, for your, your brain, you would find that politicians are left hemisphere. Mm. Uh, the art thing is like a meditation to me. It's like a trance. Um, I get asked, do I remember doing this and that and whatever to And I honestly can't remember. Mm. I cannot remember doing any stroke on whatever painting I've done and that's because I'm firmly switched over to the left hemisphere and and that's that's where peace lies uh, being being more of a corporate artist being more of a business because I've got two galleries now fortunately I got rid of the gallery in New York I was in actually the gallery in Fifth Avenue mm. of all places um, but the, some of the times I have to zigzag between right and left hemisphere and, and wear different hats for different occasions. Mm. But but when I get a chance to do painting, uh, that's that's where my peace and tranquility is. And if anybody is is considering, uh, you know, leaving a high control organisation, um, for years they've probably been hemmed in in that part of the brain. The, the left hemisphere um that's where control lies that's that's where politicians and and religious people know that people are controlled by fear and 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 confinement and constriction and and you use you use that far too much and not that enough mm. so when you leave a high control group um by all, you should you should spend most of your time here on on this part of your head <laughs> that's, that's where peace that's where you find the peace did you sort of discover that all in that period of post leaving or did you used to escape to art even during being a witness or is it very much a like a hard like before <laughs> and after line uh it's funny you should say that Celine. uh mm. uh I left school with two O-levels. I should have left school with three O-levels. I had an O-level in joinery. Mm. Oh, no, I had an O-level in art, an O-level in technical drawing. 
and I should have had a no level in daydreaming because <laughs> I forever just there's no there's see that's that's what's missing at school that's that's what's missing at school is is there's there's no lessons for teaching le- right hemisphere kids everything's left hemisphere at school mm. and um <clears throat> there should be a class for daydreaming because that's where you find inspiration mm. you can't find inspiration that's where inspiration will come to you yeah. that's another thing you, you can't find it it's like it's like trying to grab sand mm. it, or, or hold a, a snowflake that disappears but I always remember Mozart, he used to go for, he used to sit by his piano and try and compose something and he couldn't get it, inspiration wasn't there. But he says when he went out on a horse-drawn carriage and listening to the, the wheels as he looked out the window daydreaming, that's when he got all that wonderful music community sound. It found him. There was a, a lovely um, documentary by... Is uh, a large chap, American guy. He does lots of uh, documentaries. I wish I could remember his name, but never mind. You'll find it afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, he did a documentary on, I think it's Swedish school kids. Mm. He wanted to know why the education level was so high. I think it's probably the very top of all the education standards. And, and America... And all the Western countries, the UK, and they're very low. And yet, you know, you get you had, teachers have to get, you know, their the numbers right. You know, they have to get so many people in school and da 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 da. And he wanted to find out what Sweden was doing so well. Why were they doing more time at school or what? And he went and he found that the teachers were saying, "Oh, we, we teach the kids probably two hours a day, and the rest of the time they're outside playing." And he was going, "What?" And they learned more when they were playing outside, daydreaming, and just enjoying being a kid than actually being stuck. I mean, if I was to say to you, can you remember any of the assemblies? Can you remember anything from the five-day, four- or five-day conventions that we used to go and, you know, imagine you yeah. I think it's quite interesting. Bacon sandwiches. Oh, can you remember anything from those days? Nothing. Nothing. It's quite interesting, actually, Alex. As you were talking, I was thinking about um, because I've I've often said this about Jehovah's Witnesses that I think they're they're a bit different to lots of other religions because um, in a bizarre, strange sort of way, they are quite analytical. So they will do things like you know, take a scripture, take a bit of Bible verse or a, yeah, a scripture and, and then obviously tie it in with another bit of a Bible verse and then, and then use another Bible verse. So so these things can be thousands of years apart with the writers, but they'll then weave it together into a kind of overarching theory. And it is very analytical. If you, if you talk, (laughs) overlapping, yeah, go for that one. But if yeah. you talk to somebody who's like um, goes to I don't know a um, a bit more of a evangelical type of church or something, it's all emotion, isn't it? It's all it's all about just um, freeing yourself from the the, the day and uh, and just enjoying that 
moment, but I don't think Jehovah's Witnesses do that. It's all very austere, and it mm-hmm. is about studying, obviously within the, the framework that you're told you have to accept. So it's not about personal study in terms of your own critical analysis, but it is about learning texts and references and, you know, this applies to this and this applies to that which is very linguistic. So I think you're referring to the the fact that our left side of the brain is very, is kind of dedicated to the, to the language side of us, isn't it? It's that conscious yeah. language center, if you like, for most of us. Mm. Um, and I think Jehovah's Witnesses are particularly like that. So they actually believe that they can prove what they are saying is true through evidence which is different to a lot of churches because lots of churches talk about faith, whereas Jehovah's Witnesses tend to talk about evidence. Mm. Um, And that's why it's so strange because when you start to weigh it up, you realize that the evidence just doesn't doesn't weigh up with what they're actually saying. I think the evidence that they get is, because when you were talking there, I had a vision in my head. See, when you're talking, <laughs> I see pictures. And when you say they, they get scriptures together to make a, a, a theme or to make a, a line of evidence, mm-hmm. it's like a guy smacking a, a square peg into a round yeah, hole. Absolutely. It's like boom, boom. That's what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And um, it's only until somebody comes up from secular that's why they don't like people going to university absolutely absolutely um, when a secular uh, study uh, uh, thesis is brought to their attention to dis- disqualify what they say their evidence and they go oh, oh no, they, they clam up they don't want to talk oh no i don't no. we no. we say in scotland okay the game's a bogey the game's a bogey i'm taking the ball in you know, that's what they say, no, no, I don't want to know. And yeah. the other thing, you're not allowed to question no. that line of evidence. Um, if you find something, that's what uh, Raymond France, when he did his mm. uh, study on the 607, um, yeah. he couldn't find any secular evidence to say 607. It was 537, I think, the, the old secular authorities agree on um, but they were they fit that square peg into that hole that, that was 1914 um, and going back to your question Celine when I was listening to all this um, at that time when I was going through my crisis it made less sense and not less sense than it ever did it, I mean it didn't make any sense really when I was studying it <laughs> but it made less sense when I was going through that phase and you know what I did during the meetings True. I would sit there pretending to take notes <laughs> <laughs> and I would, I would draw a caricature of the brother giving the of course you did, course I, you did. I, I did I did caricatures and I had a caricature for every elder <laughs> in that kingdom hall I tell you what I was going to ask you, Alex. Was um, it's when um, when I was going when I was a kid. There's always used to be one or two brothers in the in the Kingdom Hall who were good at art, and they always used to get 
um, asked to draw like pictures and things for um, the odd elder who was going to give a talk. So my dad often got a, a, a young brother to draw him a picture who was very good at art. So he was obviously back in the days when he didn't have projectors and and PowerPoint or anything. So if you wanted any visual aid, you had to get somebody to draw or paint one for you. Did you ever get um, commissioned to do that for any of the elders giving talks? Uh, no, because oh. I, I didn't know I was any good at art then. All right. Um, I didn't know I was any good at anything, to tell you the truth. Right. And that goes back to my father. He was, he was he was illegitimate when he was born, so he didn't know who he was. I don't know who my grandfather was. He never spoke about it. And that left a huge chip on his shoulder being brought up with his grandmother because his mother didn't want to bring him up. So he had a lot of, um, uh, for want of a better word, word, shit. He had a lot of, and if you're carrying shit around, you're looking for someone to dump it. Mm. So I became his dumping ground when I was a kid. Right. That's why I didn't go home from the other I got. So I was left with this blueprint in my head that I wasn't good enough. If I if I'd become if I'd come in with a, a report card from <coughs> excuse me if I'd come in with a report card from school uh, that was straight A's. He would have said you could have been an A star, A plus. I was right. never. I used to joke on him because when I got to know him more as 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 he was dying, I got to know the real man and I kind of got to love him more. And um, I joked on with him. I was going to have him my, my headstone, my epitaph. Here lies Alexander Miller. Could have lived longer. And. <laughs> <laughs> And and then when you go to school, school bashes any you know any uh, ambition out of you, and you come out of the education system feeling crap, and you start work as a joiner. And what initially I wanted to be an actor, I had the chance to get into Glasgow Theatre Company. No, that was going to get into the way of the meetings and how you're going to go in fields of blah blah blah. Mm. So everything's beating you down. Boom. Boom, boom. So, so tell us a bit about about the other side because obviously you you're now a ridiculously successful artist. You've got two galleries. You mm. you do fantastic work. You're you know I mean that that must make you look back and and feel quite satisfied with what you're doing. You know how do you sort of look back on that? Um, sometimes it feels like somebody else has been through it and not me. Um, I remember being in Hollywood and I was invited out to Brit Week out there and they wanted me to give them one of my paintings to auction for the charity Malaria No More <coughs> and uh, I met uh, all the film stars, all the British film stars, all the musicians and da 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 and they gave us a Range Rover to <laughs> like they like you do. They gave us a Range Rover to drive around because I was I was transporting Anil Kapoor, who's a Bollywood actor, mm. from from the governor's house to the premiere of his his new film. And uh, <clears throat> I was sitting there. I, they says go and get the. I says I'll go and get the um, the Range and so I parked outside. And Eric Idle walked past. Lovely to meet you. I said, I see Eric all the best. And then. Uh, Kenneth Branagh and uh, Jeff Lynn and 
I was saying cheerio to them as if they were mates, you know, and, yeah. and I'm thinking, yeah. hang on, I was a window cleaner. <laughs> I was a window cleaner in, in Newcastle. How, how, what, what's... And I kind of, it was odd because it was, I, t- I kind of took it for granted that this, this is my life now and it's nothing really, it is special because I feel very fortunate to have the galleries, the recognition. Um, there was there was a lady. She used to be the agony aunt on the This Morning program. Uh, Denise Robertson. She she I got to know her quite well. She collected my paintings. And while all this was going on, you know, I used to joke on. I've been out with this person, that person. And she says, Alex, make sure you keep both feet in the ground. <laughs> and I said, I joked on. I says. I'll keep one foot in the ground and just let me play with the other one, you know. Uh, but my my upbringing kind of gave me a solid basis in that little village in the west coast of Scotland. It kind of it gave me a, a, a grounding to know that all this is very nice, but it's not the be-all and end-all of everything. As I said a wee while ago, that the important things are kind of right in front of you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's nice. What was a big thrill? I did uh, get the chance to be in the Theatre Royal in um, uh, in Newcastle, which is a grand theatre with you know like three or four levels. <laughs> and uh, this wanting to be on stage, I should have been. A, I should have been an actor. I wanted to be on stage. <laughs> And I, I used to do audiences with, you know, they turned into Billy Connolly things, you know, because <laughs> crazy family, crazy life. And yeah. they would have a laugh. Yeah. And I'd do a live painting. And I get the chance to do a live painting and auction at the Theatre Royal to raise money for it. Right. And they raised the house lights. And I thought there'd only be about two or 300 people because I could see was blackness in the stage lights. Yeah. And there was four floors there was 1200 people there that night uh watching me perform in the in the theater which that that made my heart go boom thing. <laughs> but and then you just you kind of just get on with um get on with living mm. I, I, i've realized how precious life is and how how short it is um and and how restrictive religions and this that and the other can be. So now it's just it's it's time to relax, to enjoy what's in front of me, and and being able to speak to the likes of you too. You know, it's it's this is what life's all about. It's great, it's, isn't it? It's been able to talk and have an interchange of mm. thoughts. And uh, and find out about other people. That it's so that it's worth more than anything, you know. Absolutely, I mean it's so lovely, isn't it? And one of the things that technology has really brought us is the ability to, you know, to be able to reach out and talk to people like this, which is is absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and you you start you start to notice that there's people that have have got so much in common with each other. And um, I mean, I would never have obviously I, I didn't know about your background at all i probably would never have found that out if i hadn't have seen it on twitter or well, i think you commented on something that i'd posted yeah I, I saw i saw something that you you, you yeah. put up mm. um i'm uh, 
<laughs> I always try. It must be the worst. It must be a Scottish thing, because we always try and look for the funny. <laughs> we always try and look for the funniness or the humour, and 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 it could be the most tragic, awful situation, but everything can be summed up so well if you just wrap it in humour. Mm. It kind of puts things in perspective, and it kind of makes you think at the same time. But and I find that there's so much. I get told off from my partner, you know, mm-hmm. she's uh, she's Indian, but she, she loves what I do. And, um, you know, she says, you're, you're on social media far too much. And it's like, but it's so interesting. <laughs> it's so fascinating. <laughs> so much to to yeah. discover. It's yeah. almost like I'm a kid in a sweet shop now because things like hypnosis, NLP, meditation, everything that was like, oh, don't. It's like why, why, why not? It's so mm. good for you, and, and it's all out there to to try. Is the other thing, even if you know you try it and it and it doesn't work for you, at least you get to try and you get to decide for you. Yeah, exactly. And being able to swear. Oh my goodness! <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> I, brilliant. I, you should hear me behind the wheel. When I, <laughs> Oh, I'm picking up doing steroids. It's it's wonderful. And it's such mm-hmm. a liberating, liberating thing to to be able to do now, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, I'll never take that for granted. Being able to <laughs> give give somebody a good mouthful, you know. Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. So so uh, you sound like a very sort of happy person now. You've um, you've been through obviously some pretty dark times, but you you sound like you've 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 got a a lot of prospects ahead of you you've got two galleries you said there's one in newcastle where's the other one one's in uh, newcastle and gray street and the other one is um in glasgow in princess square okay. i'll have to mia keeps it saying that we're all gonna have to go to glasgow because she wants to move there you see she's got oh, friends you? you've never been i've never been and she's got oh, it's one of her happiest places so oh, i'll have glasgow. to go glasgow mm-hmm. i mean edinburgh's beautiful everybody mm-hmm. always goes to edinburgh. it's a beautiful city yeah there's no Scots people there. Yeah. <laughs> it's full of tourists. You yeah. go to Glasgow and and if you go to just outside, there's a chip shop called the Blue, it's not Blue Oyster, I think it might be Blue mm-hmm. Oyster, something like that, outside the central station. Go there on a Saturday night and just mm. stand and just watch take the it in. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) It is an education. It Mm. is wonderful. Glasgow, there's a line from the uh, best hotel, number one hotel. uh, What was the Indian film? Best Marigold Hotel. Where the English lady's gone, oh, why would anybody want to live in uh, India? It's terrible. It's this, that, and the other. Poverty, blah, blah. (laughs) And Tom Wilkinson kind of goes, he says, why would anybody want to leave? All life is here. Mm. And that's Glasgow, because mm. you get all manner of life in Glasgow. You must, yeah, you must go to Glasgow. It's great. It's, oh, yeah. I, I think she, as, soon as, as soon as the world is, is more normal again, mm. she's getting us on a train. <laughs> she's, she's ready. Yeah, <laughs> make sure it's the first place you go to. I Glasgow Central. There's a lovely cocktail bar. Mm-hmm. In Glasgow Central, there's mm-hmm. a hotel, Glasgow Central. Mm-hmm. Um, go up to the cocktail bar and just, just, but the best place to be is outside that fish and chip shop. Yeah. Um, and try the 
try and deep fry Mars bar, that will wake you up. Deep fry Mars bar and chips, that will mm. set you up. See you the through week. the night, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, what's next on the horizon for you then? Is it? Is, have you got anything special coming up? Um, um, I've been looking at ways to broaden in my market i'm bringing out a range of mugs with uh, all the images on oh, yeah. i'm going to be doing uh, teaching videos because nobody teaches you how to break into the art world mm. uh, <clears throat> no you don't get taught that at college you don't get mm. taught that to anybody mm. no art teacher will teach you how to break into the art world yeah Little that's really important yeah, mm. yeah so you, with all of our different artistic practices when we were at uni we're all you know, I was like pursuing writing and Aiden acting and so on. But um, yeah, you get really good at the thing you're good that you know that you're pursuing, and then you're like, and now what do yeah. I do? <laughs> you're just sort of adrift. Yeah. You graduate and you're adrift, wondering how all these people got to where they got to. Because you know, you're yeah. like, I'm quite good at this, but how do I get people to see it and care? They 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 always say that um, the first thing you hear once you leave art college is. Um, Big Mac and fries, please. Mm. You know, <laughs> because you've got this amazing education, but it's like, what do you do with it? Yeah. Whoa, whoa, how do you use it? You know, there's, there's a, you've got the key. Where's the lock? Mm. Um, and I've been doing painting for about twenty odd years now, mm. and in the last twenty years. Last twenty years, I've been kind of the top of my tree, and mm. I've discovered things along the way. I've, I've gained a lot of experience through trial and error. I've kind of seen how things work. So now it's time to to give that back to to some people that are starting at the beginning, mm. start mine again. You know, so that would be a big thing for me to do. Mm. So I've got that. Right. Uh, it's coming up soon. That'll be nice. Brilliant. Day. Yeah. Well, we're, we've um, we've taken an hour of your time, Alex, and um, I, I don't know about you, Celine, but I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. Mm-hmm. You're an absolute fantastic storyteller. Mm-hmm. Um, I can see why you had visions of being an actor, because <laughs> um, you have that that way of holding the rooms. So that's fantastic. I really mm-hmm. enjoyed talking to you. Which is to um, me, grand, grand old dames outfit, you know. <laughs> I'd just like to say thank you very much, Alex, mm-hmm. and um, good luck with uh, with all the rest of the the work that you're doing. And and the 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 course sounds great. A great idea is to mm. to help you know others to uh, to learn how to do uh, something similar to what you've done. So thank you very much it's been my pleasure and it's been lovely to be able to meet both of you and see both of you and talk to you thank you thank you Celine it's been great What Should I Think About is an Evil Sheep production 